I'm Dr Rod Lamberts and this is To Be Continued, a podcast from the Australian National University that extracts the literary gold from Australia's newspapers in the 19th and early 20th century. Our old newspapers are treasure troves of forgotten literature, crammed full of stories offering glimpses of a past, both familiar and foreign. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. The blazing skirts of the forests, huge isolated trees, glaring red, standing columns of fire. Here, a vast troop of wild horses with flying manes and tails, rushing with thundering hooves over the plain. There, herds of cattle running with bloodshot eyes and hanging tongues, They knew not whither, but from the fires. Troops of kangaroos leapt frantically across the rider's path, their hair singed and giving out strongly the stench of fire. Birds of all kinds and colors shrieking piteously as they drove wildly by and yet saw no spot of safety. Thousands of sheep standing huddled in terror on the scorched flats with singed wool, deserted by their shepherds who had fled to save their own lives. You've just listened to a snippet from Black Thursday, which was written or published in 1856 in Dickinson's Household Words, which sounds very fancy, Dickinson's Household Words. It was, of course, republished in newspapers in Australia and repeatedly republished, I think, even up until more modern times. Um, But we're going to talk about bushfires today. I'm just the host. We need an expert. As always, we need an expert. And today, I'm joined by Finn Morgan. She's a PhD candidate in literary studies at the Australian National University. She's also a librarian and archivist, and she knows these stories. Do you know these stories well, Finn? Do you dream about them at night? Uh, Yes, yes, I I do. And um, my particular interest in these stories came out of well, during the Black Summer at the end of 2019, I'd just started my PhD and this um, catastrophic event was unfolding and um, within the context of kind of climate denial that was also, um, at the same time, there were some kind of general appeals to historical incidences that um, gestured towards how this was not an average event or an extraordinary event at all. So my interest in these historical tales was to go back and look at colonial representations of bushfires and then also read them alongside the reporting on bushfires as well to theoretically try and explore to what extent the disaster that we were experiencing was either a continuum or indeed an exceptional event. The morning was hushed and breathless. Robert Patterson found the perspiration standing thick on his face, and he felt a strange longing for a deep breath of fresh air. The first story, Black Thursday, opens on a man in the bush out with a herd of cattle. Suddenly, there came a puff of air, but it was like the air from the jaws of a furnace, hot, dry, withering in its very touch. The young settler looked quickly in the direction from which it came, 
and instantly shouted to the cattle before him, a wild, abrupt, startling shout. He then runs from the fire, pushing the cattle away to safety. The roar of the fire came louder and seemed to swell and surge as if urged on by a rough, rising blast. The heat was fierce and suffocating. The young squatter's clothes clung to him with streaming perspiration. And he makes it back to his house, which uh, ends up being quite crowded. Families with troops of children had encamped on the open ground near the Patterson house in temporary tents of sheets and blankets. His house was crammed with fugitives and was a scene of crowding, confusion and sorrow. Luckily, the Patterson storeroom was well stocked with flour and there could be no want of meat with all those flocks and herds about them. Because he had prepared his land really well. With a caution inspired by former outbreaks of bushfires, he had made at some distance round his homestead a bare circle. He had felled the forest trees, leaving one only here and there at such distances that there was little fear of ignition. But that's not a heroic enough ending, so he goes out to check on his neighbours and ends up saving one who fell off a cliff. There lay George, stretched in the midst of a grassy thicket, with a face expressing agony and exhaustion. Robert seized his offered hand. So this story is based on a real fire. Can you tell me about the major bushfires your work draws from? There's basically the 19th century is is bookended by two fire disasters. Black Thursday, which is ostensibly the first major fire disaster in Australian history, and then Red Tuesday, which takes place in 1898 in Gippsland in Victoria as well. Black Thursday burned two-thirds of the Victorian colony. It was Two-thirds? It was huge in terms of comparison to the Black Summer, potentially on geographic scale. Yeah. It may have been comparable. So, so is, what happens in this story real? This particular story and this sequence that we would have listened to is... It's this intersection of journalistic reporting that William Howitt has drawn together from newspaper reporting from the event and his own narrativization um, as well. Um, you said this was a, a narrativized version, I think was the word you used. So is that a gentle way of saying slightly fictional or is it more because it's a compendium of stories or reports, I should say? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. William Howitt wasn't... He wasn't there when this fire happened. Um, he has put together bits of the reporting, um, bits of the story, sorry, especially that opening sequence where this this um, description of Apollo Bay kind of pre-disaster, essentially what it seemed to look like before this fire came through. A lot of that does come out of newspaper reporting um, that he has stitched together. Um, the story itself is very important I think in terms of Australian environmental history and also especially the role that fire has played historically in colonisation as a tool and as a necessity for advancing the distinct colonies, but especially the Victorian colony where this particular story takes place. So you're saying fire is a tool of colonisation? 
Yes. Ooh. So in some representations, like Charles Harper's 1851 um, poem of the, of called The Bushfire, which probably was written about Black Thursday, there is a family escaping away from the homestead that burns down. But then in this particular story, the protagonist is escaping the fire front to his homestead that he has cleared this bush around the homestead, thereby saving the homestead because he is this virtuous settler who understands the land. He understands, you know, how to avoid... He's a, he's a successful colonist, basically, unlike other kinds of individuals who haven't done this kind of preparation to save their property, basically. So he's returning to his homestead that has also become a, a place where other people have taken refuge because he has done this clearing, basically. Yeah, he comes across as a bit of a hero later on or like a, a pillar of the community, doesn't he? Because he's beat exactly what you say. He's suddenly people will turn up at his house. Yeah. It, it kind of smells of that grasshopper and the ant story to me. You know, all these people were mucking around in summer or rather in winter in this instance and getting prepared. Whereas he was working hard and now they all benefit from his labours. Yes, exactly. And um, towards the end of the story, William Howard does allude to the fact that Black Thursday was probably the product of basically people burning off when they shouldn't have been, um, lighting fires when they shouldn't have been, um, because, and again, kind of the bad colonists who, who don't understand to be productive colonists to work with with the land. Yeah. Um, Interesting, because it's also, it's very evocatively written, isn't it? And this, I assume, contributed to its popularity. Was it popular? Um, it was popular in the sense of it was republished in Australian newspapers mm. um, across the rest of the 19th century, which was a source of great interest to me because I had not been able to find Another story, which was a direct memorialization or narrativization of a specific bushfire disaster, right. and also one which endured for essentially, I, I think it was published up up until the early twentieth century, at least. So a good well, sixty so to seventy. Did many years. follow suit, or was this really a standalone? It, it made a splash, and it didn't really continue in this vein. Um. Uh, yes, so generic kind of narratives about bushfires. Um, no narratives uh, that reference a kind of a, a specific bushfire event. Um, only Black Thursday does continue to pop up as an event in various narratives um, because the disaster also coincided with Victoria becoming a colony independent of New South Wales. It also coincided and probably partly contributed to the discovery of gold potentially as well um, for Victoria because it, um, it the the scale of the disaster was so substantial that it did clear such a significant amount of land that um, areas that were previously impassable were now obviously opened up to prospectors and could be accessed by um, colonizers or invaders basically. Yeah. Wow. Um I, I don't think the story really goes into this. The suspicions of how this fire began, is it suspicious? Sounds like there could be good motivation for it being suspicious, but yeah, any any hints? The story establishes the, the, the cause of the fire to um, bad colonists who don't understand how to be good colonists, which is being able to farm and work with the land. Yeah. Um, undoubtedly, it would have been attributable 
to um, uh, practices, uh, you know, imported agricultural practices that were not conducive with um, that particular land, um, undoubtedly uh, would be um, attributed to, as well to the interruption of Indigenous land management re um, regimes and practices as well, um, which would have substantially um, impacted the land's biota and cleared the way for this kind of event to take place. Yeah. But... What I think is interesting is that for the remainder of the century, Victoria does experience very consistent, very serious um, fire disasters, albeit none of those receive the nomenclature of, say, Black Thursday. Um, I did find just through my own research one event which took place in 1865 that was called Black Monday that took place on February the 27th, but that kind of gets forgotten and by the point in 1901 where there's a Royal Commission into fire um, in country districts, it's left off it completely as a significant fire event. Okay. So just trying to get a, a feeling for this. So do you think it was, are stories like this more about entertainment than they are about like a, a record of events then, or is this? Uh, yeah. Great question. I think probably initially it was about entertainment. I think it was also about interest um, for household word readers, um, reading about this phenomenon in Australia that would have been totally foreign to these readers. I think this story came, um, took on a functional purpose across the remainder of the century because it's like, it's not a great story, really. Like, it's not really super interesting. The fact that it keeps getting republished is interesting, I think, for a couple of reasons. I think because it um, instantiates Black Thursday at a scale of disaster from then which no subsequent kind of fire disaster can can ever reach, basically. Um, whatever happens next, it's not as bad as Black Thursday. Yeah. So the colony must be improving. We must be kind of getting better, um, basically becoming better colonists. Um, right. So it's a good icon, like it's a, a standard for saying the bad old days, but since then, way better. Exactly. Okay. Um, that is, of course, until Red Tuesday, um, uh, which is at the end of the century. But in the, that intervening time, um, it, it is a story which means uh, it is, is basically prevents fire reform in the Victorian colony across that time frame. Um, and then also... It does identify the, the cause, suspected cause of, of this disaster as being individuals who were um, bad colonists who were not doing the right thing, rather than obviously um, what would be the, the impacts of invasion and colonisation, alteration of the land's biota, the, the fact that um, the use of fire was such an important tool for colonisation in terms of moving inland, moving into different regions that were impassable for pastoralists, for prospectors alike. To clear land, um, fire was totally um, necessary. Um, and to so, so to legislate um, heavily, um, because there were laws, but um, whether they were enforced is probably unlikely would have been a huge infringement, infringement, sorry, um, on the advancement of the colony. Yeah, right. And the, yes, there wasn't a tradition of appreciating people coming in and telling you what to do, was there, around this, <laughs> this part of Australia's history? So it stands, um, it clearly stands as a cautionary tale. I mean, that's it's pretty unambiguous. Yes. But also it seems to stand as an icon of that, as you brought up a lot, you know, bad colonists, 
good colonist. Yeah. So our main man is a good colonist. Then he's demonstrating the good behaviours. Yes, and certainly um, a lot of these stories from the 19th century will to some extent kind of demonstrate uh, fire preparation or firefighting um, procedures. Um, And very often this will involve um, the idea of sending a fire to meet a fire. That seems to occur quite a bit in these narratives where the fire is being fought at the fire front. Um, But certainly there are definitely the associations of the individual who can um, defend their property and the associations of masculinity with with those kinds of competencies are definitely there. It's like a a not very subtle instruction book, but not really. Be like this guy, we're not going to give you details. Yeah, and um, certainly the clearing around the property to... um, defend against bushfires, I think today we would think that's totally insane and <laughs> like wouldn't do anything. Although I do know that after um, Black Thursday, I think was the first time that um, there were legislations about building, um, oh. building, uh, so you weren't allowed to build with thatched roofs. That sounds reasonable to <laughs> <laughs> But I think if we if we take that image further, I mean, there's some great stuff in here, like the describing his ability with a stock whip. Swung aloft the stock whip, which he held in his hand, and brought it down with the report of a pistol and the sharp cutters with a knife on the ear of the huge bullock just before him. Which made him sound like a Marvel superhero, you know, his ability to basically, what, knock the fly off a, a, the nose of a bull at nine million miles. It was um really quite incredible the way they described that. And also the horse. But Sorcerer, with an instinct more infallible than any human, sped on. Over thicket and stone and fallen trees, snorting in the thick masses of smoke and stretching forward his gaping jaws to catch every breath of air to sustain impeded respiration. And on and on it goes. Like There are these really rich, iconic, heroic images of him and his, his beasts. Yes. Quite... I, mean, I found those quite evocative too. I was reading that going, oh my God, he's a legend. But it did sound very superhero-like. Is that common as well? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, certainly there, um, that imagery of the yeah the um, the man on the horse um, either going to a property to save it or from it is certainly a kind of recurrent imagery. Um, the imagery of the animals the birds, the kangaroos, the snakes, all en masse leaving as well. Um, and then the kind of um, anthropomorphic description of the bushfire. The fire leapt from tree to tree, flashing and roaring along with the speed and destructiveness of lightning. Certainly these kinds of stories, often the, the fire will serve as the device to unite the kind of estranged lovers or also... Uh, um, uh, the the event which kind of levels these social distinctions uh, as well. So in this case, the the two families, um, one is of uh, uh, convict stock, um, and the other is is not. Uh, yeah, and uh, so a, a misunderstanding basically about one individual making a derogatory con- um, comment about someone's social background has estranged these two individuals that are then reunited through this catastrophic um, yeah. event. A horse, 
ridden by a lady, approached at a gallop. The young lady was tall and had a most beautiful figure. She was mounted on a fine bay horse. Miss Maxwell, Patterson exclaimed, in the name of heaven, what news? So that's that's interesting too. So the, the fire, in a sense, is often playing second place. It's like the catalyzing event, but that's about it. Yes. In this story in particular, it seems. Yes, um, and it's the you know it's a an emotionally charged kind of event as well. Um, I think there's an earlier story by Alan Clacy, um, which is also called the Bushfire, which is also about Black Thursday, which has a very similar. So it's, the the guy saves the the girl basically from from the fire in a very similar kind of yeah, yeah. sequence. So it's not an unusual trope. Um, this one, I suppose, what again, what makes it kind of interesting is the journalistic elements, mm-hmm. the, the the language that is so evocative that is taken from obviously other people's reporting of this event and then also the kind of like causal attribution of the disaster as well. So the the, the notion of journalistic um, language being so florid is maybe a bit rude, but that was no. common as well, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. Um, super, super descriptive. Yeah. Um, yeah, having spent quite a bit of time reading colonial newspapers now, the kind of genre of reporting is quite different uh, <laughs> to whatever our associations of journalism would be. Uh, description is an extremely important part of this kind of writing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the one that grabbed me, graphic strip, uh, descriptions of injury. There was, yes. there was a, a great little snippet I dragged out with it. It's what? The man turned upon him a visage that terrified him. It was indeed no longer a human visage, but a scorched and swollen mass of deformity. The beard and hair were burnt away. Eyes were not visible, the whole face being a confused heap of red flesh and hanging blisters. The poor fellow raised a pair of hands that displayed equally the dreadful work of the fire. You know, it's not bad in the Australian or the Canberra Times, do you? I mean, that's not the kind of language we would expect anymore, but this is completely standard in a newspaper of the day, it sounds like. Or am I going too far there? I'm not sure if I could answer that entirely, but certainly quite a few of these stories that were published as serialised stories in Australian newspapers do have that kind of imagery within them. Um, certainly when I've also looked at um, reporting on... Uh, stories about crime or that kind of thing, there are similar kinds of descriptions. Yeah. And um, certainly there are kind of ghost stories and horror stories um, where, yeah, that that kind of description is definitely not censored. Yeah, and we do, in fact, in another episode of To Be Continued, speak about gothic horror and that. And it's, it's yeah, similarly, the deep and rich, I think, I think newspapers are poorer for it today. It's kind of, it's nicer to get involved in the story. Because, I mean, Americans tend to call them wildfires. Yes. Um, at the time, I assume bushfire was a very Australian way of putting it, or maybe not. Yeah, I think it was. And I think Black Thursday very potentially was the event which cohered that, at least for an international audience, into a term. Um, prior to that, kind of just looking through Trove, the term fire in the bush does seem to be more dominant, and bushfire does become a more coherent term after that particular event. Okay. Um, I didn't find as many, I, I was interested in looking at wild, stories about wildfires as well, kind of looking at representations from America. Mm-hmm. I found that very difficult to do 
because wildfire seemed to be an extremely common name for horses in stories, um, which made it very difficult to identify wildfire as an event, whereas bushfire, could, I could be quite confident that that was an event. Um, I, there was only one incident, um, one story, where I found bushfire mentioned as um, a, a kind of a phrase spread like bushfire, but in every other instance it was at least bushfire as an event. Um, that's, yeah, I hadn't thought of when that began, but it sounds like we are talking about a seminal period here. Yeah, and I mean, across the 20th century, Black Thursday and Red Tuesday are the only two fire disasters we, kind of that are named, mm. basically, that have been historicised in, um, in literature. And I, I assume then, you know, as part of the many things we become proud of as as that tr- part of this Australian tradition, the bushfire is sort of a, it's an identifying term. It you know, brings us together around a particular identity, et cetera. Whereas if you, if no one would say we had a wildfire on the outskirts of Sydney, it wouldn't, people would think you're a bit strange, wouldn't they? Yeah, potentially. I suppose this isn't something that I got to explore explicitly, yeah. but there's a very iconic painting of um, Black Thursday that's at the National Gallery of Victoria by William Strutt. And that um, particular painting was toured internationally in the 1860s, I, I believe. Mm. So b- bushfire by that point had become a, yeah, a coherent um, concept or phenomenon or terminology. Yet a, yeah, another thing to kind of mark us out, because I mean, the, the early colonial times were a period of us trying to distinguish ourselves from the rest of the planet as well, wasn't it? We were trying to make sure that we were, we're not like the rest, we're new, yeah. we're something different. Yeah, exactly. And I think probably the, this kind of rather unremarkable story kind of has a part to play in that, in that other stories might have referenced bushfires or there might be some uh, conceptual understanding of what a bushfire is, but it there hadn't been a narrative necessarily constructed around this event yet. And I think that this story played a part in starting to construct a, a more cultural narrative around this phenomenon. Maybe a good spot to move to the other story, Rhea, a West Australian story. It's published by an anonymous or pseudonymous author. It, as far as I can see, it hasn't been syndicated or republished. I don't know who the author is. And this is the only publication, I think, at that time of this story ever being published. The story opens up with a newly widowed woman named Rhea. There was no mistaking now. She and the baby were left alone. Who goes back to her property and a romance of sorts begins between her and an employee. Rhea knew it well. She knew that he was working for love of her and hers. And it pleased her to see what power she had over him. But the story quickly turns. And Rhea, looking up to ask again, suddenly left off washing and screamed out, My God, what's that? And rushing up the bank towards the house where the ground was open, stared in terror down the river. Rhea leaps into action to go and combat this bushfire. Elizabeth Ann, you run and tell the men, say I've gone on and stop and make some tea a lot and bring it with you in a jug. 
Greer then saddled up a horse that was standing tied up in the yard and galloped down across the paddock and soon was lost to sight in a thin cloud of smoke that was sweeping up the river. And together with her staff, they managed to beat the fire back. But at last, Sullivan and his mate and Rhea had worked round to the river and on that side, the fire was safe. Interesting. That's a very different story. Yes. I mean, they both have bushfires in them. How much else would you say they are similar? I'm curious about your thoughts on that story. Well, in terms of being narratives about class, Mm. um, there's definitely intersections there. Certainly this story is unusual in terms of its representation of women and fire fighting the more um, usual kind of gender division of firefighting labour would see women often left alone at the homestead while the men Mm. will fight the fire at the front beyond the property. Um, But this being an unusual representation of a woman not only fighting fire to defend what is her property Mm. at the fire front, but also leading the defence with her employees. Corey, we need to, I think it's worth pausing on that, you know, to be really clear for people listening it was actually hers. It was left to her by her father, I believe. Even though she had a husband who died, yes. father was very specific about saying, no, this goes to my daughter. Yes, the alcoholic husband dies. It becomes her property, which she can seemingly manage quite adequately, um, at which point her on and off kind of romantic interest, um, who is the son of a not uh, financially necessarily well off, but socially more elevated Englishman um, kind of sees that she is perhaps more worthy of attention now that she is propertied, basically, and re-enters yeah. the picture. It seemed pretty clear he, he didn't have a lot of money. No, no. And she certainly did. But I mean, this the, the idea that, that the woman would inherit and own the property, I assume, is quite unusual at the time, or am I getting carried away? There are other stories of women running properties on their own, but it's just in this instance from the outset, it is very much established that it is not the done thing to do and that she should be taking on a husband or something to to, to do that with, which she obviously resists. It is kind of as I mentioned about the the fire being the catalyst often for these kind of um, resolutions or emotional outbursts or something, it's kind of almost unfortunate in this story that the successful defence of what is her property in in this story actually um, leads to her realisation that I think there is some kind of wording in this story that's something along the lines of that you can't keep a home and defend it. I mean, it's yeah, it's a story about property, I suppose, in in many different kinds of ways, in the sense of her inheritance and running um, this station, her ability to run it quite successfully. But the kind of, I, I wouldn't call them suitors, but the two individuals who are interested in her because of the fact that um, she obviously is propertied and does have money, also do very much, I think, even use the language of property when describing or referring to her throughout the entire story. And it is why, in the end, she is killed, because an employee uh, of hers feels scorned or slighted that his attempts to ingratiate himself to her have not been accepted. And he feels annoyed, basically, by that and wronged, and then basically, yes, kills her for that. I mean, I know this is not an uncommon theme 
No. Gentlemen, a gentleman, I use the term broadly, is slighted and that's sufficient grounds to murder someone. Yes, it definitely has very contemporary resonances in terms of attitudes and also I think it's very symbolic that at the end that this main character does actually die at the gate between the garden and the rest of the property. So at this very boundary between what is more conventional domestic feminine sphere and the area that is the more masculine bush kind of space and the fact that she was an individual who would transgress seemingly that kind of barrier I mean, the whole story just seems like the retribution for, for that kind of transgression. And of course, it'd be remiss not to consider this and the, the representation of First Nations and Indigenous peoples in this, in both these stories, they didn't seem to feature strongly. Like there were lots of, at least what seemed like sort of throwaway references to a native in, in the, the Black Thursday story, if I remember the two correctly, but there doesn't seem to be a lot going on there, they didn't feature much, whereas in other types of stories, it seems that they may feature more. Is that, again, is there any kind of pattern there that you're aware of? I suppose what surprised me, not in a positive way, was this identification of some kind of association of Indigenous fire management practice with the health or the vitality of the land. A complete misassociation of what that actually was and the association that this was either just a lucky byproduct that was not realised that this was what was happening or it was because of hunting, basically. But because in these earlier invasion narratives, Indigenous Australians are the people who know the land, they know where it's habitable, they know where water is, and they are of assistance in um, these yet much earlier invasion historicising stories. We're still, I mean, up until very recently, even the acknowledgement that Indigenous fire management practices might actually work and be useful. I mean, we're talking only, what, the last couple of decades that's been considered as a a sensible, useful, well-tested, time-honoured way of handling fire in the landscape. No, totally. I mean, in terms of a mainstream association, that's only happened in the last couple of years. And it's not just, I suppose it's not just disappointing would be too light of a word to say that that recognition only comes in the face of the greater destruction, basically, of so-called, like, colonial Australia, basically, and the realisation that Indigenous knowledges are what is sustainable and required to live on this continent. Yeah, it's it's that sniff of, well, we're desperate enough, we'll try anything, therefore now we will listen to you is is a terrible way to come across it or embrace it, so to speak. In these stories, but also in stories that we write today and have continued to do probably forever. We probably did them well before Bushfire Tales too. We see the use of fiction to help us uh, discuss, unpick, um, maybe heal from events of great significance, often disasters as well. Um, To what extent was this, I suppose, common in the day? And do you see many comparisons that are similar or different between then and now in stories? I assume you don't only read stories from the 1850s, the 60s? No. (laughs) No, and I think it's a great question because that was one of the enduring questions for me was why would this somewhat not totally remarkable story kind of endure for as long as it did, not just in cultural memory, but kind of republished into the 20th century. I think that stories are functional, that they will retain and endure in cultural memory as long as they serve the kind of cultural purpose of the time or what is happening at the time. 
in terms of this story, in terms of the necessity of fire for um, pastoralists, for prospectors, for clearing land, the fact that it had a narrative of this was then, this was the birth of the colony when we didn't know what to do with the land and now we do, meant that subsequent kinds of disasters, which seemingly happened with great regularity across the 19th century, were not instantiated or were not declared as disaster, basically, because Black Thursday was this bad and here is this story that we kind of repeat to reassure basically ourselves that the colony is heading towards some kind of progress and improving. So with these stories in general, is there anything that particularly in your mind characterizes them or are there characteristics of them that really stand out as being particularly similar and or particularly different now versus then? I think we've known this for a long time that we are in the business of intentionally forgetting disaster because it's inconvenient to modern capitalist industrial society to acknowledge that our kind of processes are not conducive with the environment. Black Thursday was memorialised probably provisionally because the colony was not as progressed, that they were not as um, sophisticated as they became later, even within the context of increasing kind of exponential environmental kind of decline that only could be revised when Red Tuesday took place in 1898 um, and then they had to have a royal commission. But in terms of forgetting is definitely the enduring story of colonial Australian fire history. Yeah, and look, it, this this makes me think strongly. I was in Canberra when, it was about 20 years ago, some huge fires swept through and safe little, carefully protected, you know, good citizen Canberra lost hundreds of houses. And then there was a report, I think it was a few years ago, so the 15th anniversary of Canberra bushfires and still a noteworthy percentage of properties in those zones were not insured. And just speaking to your point about that whole, and what is it, I suppose, disaster amnesia and cultural amnesia about these sorts of things, that it serves a purpose. Uh, absolutely. And um, certainly one of these disasters, the Black Monday, that did not get kind of memorialised in 1865, there was debate in Parliament that was occurring around that time about setting up disaster relief for the farmers, for the colonists who had lost their property. The debate and what eventuated was that disaster relief would not be provided to these individuals because disaster relief would have to be provided every year. So there was an acknowledgement to some extent that the way that people were living on the land where they were living was not sustainable. But also that position does not work with developing a colony or a nation as well. No, and we're doing it right now in the northern riverlands and areas, those are concerned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You chose to build here. It's bad. We're not going to insure you for that. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yay. Same, same. Yep. Um, so in terms of that sense, yes, there is a continuum, I think, in terms of Australian fire history and response and intentional amnesia. We'll call ourselves a very focused people then. <laughs> That's my best positive speech. <laughs> if people want to know more, obviously they can go and play with Trove, which we would encourage everyone to do because it really is rich with stuff like this and, and many many um, subjects beyond that. But if people want to know more, more specifically about bushfire history of these things, the stories that are being told, Victoria or beyond, where would you send them? The stories that 
we listened to uh, part of an edited collection from the To Be Continued project called Black Thursday and Other Lost Australian Bushfire Stories by Orbiter Publishing, which can be bought if people are interested mm-hmm. in reading more of these stories. Excellent. Well, look, I'll, I'll thank you very much, Finn Morgan, and I hope your PhD goes extremely well and at the Australian National University. I really appreciate you talking to us today. But thank you. If you'd like to hear the full stories we've spoken about today, we've published a special bonus episode with them read out for you wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell someone about it. We'd love as many people as possible to hear these amazing stories. In our next episode, we look at the dawn of a new age through the lens of a magnificent new contraption, the aeroplane. This podcast was produced by Dave Fanner and Miles Martignoni for the Engaged ANU Project.